0: Uh, and so today, how Jesus informs our understanding of money. I, I got I got some stuff for us this morning. I, I haven't talked about money in a long time, maybe too long, maybe never. And so we did a what if initiative. Um, and so this is if you're coming in hot and this is your first time. This is man. I I feel like I just the. I feel like maybe a confession where I'm, I'm learning that this is a really important topic for us to talk about if we want to follow Jesus. And, uh, and as I've grown as a pastor, I'm learning that it's important to, to talk about this. And so if you don't typically take notes, maybe pull out a note and, uh, and jot some things down because I think there's going to be some really helpful things that Jesus shares to us uh, about money. I got four points for us. We're just going to jump in. The first is this, that money isn't bad, it's a tool. Money isn't bad. It's a tool. The history of money is fascinating. When we think of money, we can think of the U.S. currency. But money goes uh, much farther back than even the genesis of America. Uh, a long, long time ago, in a faraway land, there was something called bartering. That was the OG of money many, many, many moons ago. They, this, this concept of trade, of goods and services, took place with, through this, this means called bartering. So a farmer may exchange a bushel of wheat for a pair of shoes, and that's how interaction bartering took place. Or maybe someone sold several tools for a sheep, and you can imagine how frustrating carrying five tools on a donkey to this person's place to get the sheep, and then having that sheep on your shoulder driving you bonkers as you're riding that donkey back to your house. That would have been very frustrating. So to simplify and ex- expedite trade, this thing called money, currency, was introduced. Currency or money is a medium of exchange with a recognized and agreed upon value that helped expedite bartering. So bartering wasn't efficient, so efficiency won, and, and we received this thing called um, currency. And so the first coin... Uh, was in 1100 B.C. in China. So this is before King David, so a long, long time ago. And the thing you see up here is a Lydian coin, and this was in 600 B.C., so right before Babylon invaded Israel. If you're studying in our Bible study, you'll get there soon enough. So right around that time was when these uh, first minted currencies took place in Lydia in 600 B.C., So you fast forward to 1280, so 1800 years later, and China replaced the coin with a paper currency. And on this paper currency, we we have on our paper currency, in God we trust. And then this original uh, Chinese uh, paper currency, it didn't say in God we trust. It said, instead it said those who are counterfeiting will be beheaded. So that was, that was what it said on this Chinese note. And so in 1680, a few hundred years later, we get this paper note in Europe that we know of as uh, functionally the, the dollar bill. Uh, so we now are in the 21st century, and we have these two novel forms of currency. We have mobile payments, we have virtual currency, this thing's ever changing even now now. Before us. To summarize, the Puritan William Ames said that riches are morally neither good nor bad, but things indifferent, which men may use either well or ill. So, what we see is that money is a tool. Money is a tool, it always has been a tool. When we make it into a treasure, we turn it into something it was never designed to be. Money was never designed to be a treasure. It was simply designed to be a tool that expedited bartering that helped us able to interact together. And as, as we've seen as time has gone on and even as long as history has known that it can very easily become a treasure. Stuff can be a treasure. There are two gutters when it comes to understanding our understanding of money. Uh, and this hit me while I was in India. I was uh, sitting in a taxi. Harrison, who you just saw there, uh, and their business partner, uh, Dustin and Mallory, who helped start ZIADA with the Dejarnats. Uh, we were, Dustin and Harrison and myself, were on our way from Delhi to Patna, Delhi is the capital of India, and Putna is where they live. Uh, and so we are en route to Patna, and talking together and And I was just telling uh, Dustin Harrison was in the front. And so Dustin and I were in the back talking. And I was just telling uh, Dustin how, how helpful it is to get out of our bubble. How helpful it is for me. It's been far too long since I've gone to a place like India, since 2008. Uh, And so for me, it's been many, uh, many years ago. And it's just really good to get out of our bubble of comfort and and, and affluence and the things that we feel and the marketing we feel and kind of get into a different context and to kind of be uh, taken out of the context of materialism. And I was surprised. It was like this surprising twist because he was saying it's also really good for him to leave Putna. Because in Putna, it's poverty-stricken, uh, pain and everywhere, sickness and hardship and a lack of medical support. And, and it can really cause you to be a fairly pessimistic uh, when you live in that environment for a long period of time. And likewise, for me, to step out of materialism is really helpful. He said to step out of this word asceticism can be really helpful. And so there's two gutters when it comes to money. One gutter would be materialism. This thought, this understanding of materialism or material things or stuff giving me a level of identity that it was never designed to give me. That's a gutter when it comes to money. And on the other side, there's this gutter that everything's bad. That stuff is bad. That's a platonic thought That's a, uh, when, it, when it comes to how, uh, how that was originated. But this, this thought that, that you have spiritual things that are good, and then you have physical things that are bad. And so the spiritual life is good, but this physical life is, is bad, and so stuff is bad. That would be another, another gutter that we can find ourselves in. So we have asceticism, and the theological death for ascetics is this phrase, everything God created is good. So things are not inherently bad, they're neutral. Our hearts can turn anything uh, into idols, but stuff in and of itself is, is just neutral And then the theological death for materialists is the emptiness of more. The more you have doesn't mean you find fulfillment in those things. You know, St. Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so both of those are gutters when it comes to money, when it comes to stuff. Martin Luther compared humanity to a drunkard who falls off of his horse to the right, and then gets back on and falls off the horse to the left. And so there's this constant life of falling into this gutter or to that gutter. And he went on to say that Satan doesn't care what side of the horse we fall off on as long as we don't stay on the saddle. And so for us, the invitation is to stay on the saddle. And so as we embark on this journey of talking about money over these next couple of weeks, we have to understand that we naturally will fall on one side or the other. other. But there's a narrow path that Jesus invites us into. Say it over and over again, that money isn't bad. Stuff isn't bad bad. It's neutral. Money is a tool. It always has been. And it's a tool for us to steward. That's the first thought. The second is this, that God God owns everything. God owns everything. Psalm 24, one says, "The, the the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. That everything in the world, around the world, even into the details of your own life, you don't own. Because God owns, there's not this dynamic where we we now take the rights of what God owns and make it ours. No, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It covers everything that He owns, everything which includes your bank accounts. He owns everything. Job forty one, verse eleven, in the second half says, "Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine." That He owns it all, which means we own nothing before the eyes of God. It's a different thought. When we think of individualism, we talked about this a few weeks ago, individualism is this, is this is my life, my expression, my way of doing life, my body, my job, my money, my kids. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But when you open up this good book, you begin to see that none of it's yours, that he was the creator and he gave us responsibility to steward it, but none of it's ours. The God owns everything. You know. We, then we get into the life of Jesus, and we see in the Sermon on the Mount this really beautiful picture of how Jesus would want us to see stuff, see life. And in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, we read this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, perceive it, that God is the source of all things. We were never designed to to be primary um, owners or the ones who are in charge of life. No, that just brings anxiety. We were called to submit to the one who owns all things. See, because you are not in control of your life, don't be anxious about tomorrow. You have no control. We have no control over what tomorrow brings. See, because God owns it all, we need not worry about tomorrow. See, the tide of society wants to make us think that we are more in control of life than we actually are. I mean, think about this, Charles Schwab. Some of you invest into Charles Schwab. The tagline of Charles Schwab is this, own your tomorrow. It's, marketing is teaching us that we are in control of our future and yeah, it's good to say there's actually biblical precedent for it. But this idea that we can own our tomorrow, and I get what they're saying, but there's this implication that we can control our future. It's like, no, we we actually, all we have is this moment before us. It makes us feel that we're more in control than we actually are. And friends, we are just but one phone call away from life changing on a dime for us. Some of you guys know that firsthand. We are not in control of our life, but God. He owns everything. So Jesus says, you can't own your tomorrow. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Live in the present. Look at the flowers. I think they are stressing? No. How much more your Father in heaven who cares for them will, will care for you? So yes, we steward. Yes, we budget. Yes, we save. And if you don't, you should. Yes, we give. All of those things are appropriate. But don't place, take the place that only God can be. He Owns everything, which means we are less in control than we want to admit. So instead, we're called the steward. We don't own it, but we're called to steward what God has given to us. Money isn't bad, and we're responsible to steward, which leads to the third point, which is this. We're responsible to be stewards with all of our life because God owns everything. And He's given you gifts, He's given you talents to image himself, and we are responsible to steward what he's entrusted to us. In 1 Peter 4, 10, it should just hop up here in a second. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. I'll get it. We're good. 1 Peter 4, 10, it says this. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So each of us has been given something to steward, and now we are responsible to steward the thing that God has given to us. This is true of your work, as Drew talked about last week, and this is also true of our money. There's a parable, and I'm going to give a good bit. Jesus talks so much about money, so I have to talk about what Jesus talked about if I want to get an understanding of what Jesus had about money. Um, There's a parable in Luke 19. You can read it another time, but there's a nobleman. Jesus talked about this parable. This nobleman is going to leave, and he's going to give these individuals a set of money to steward. They were called minas in that day. It was about at least $10,000 in our the currency, uh, and so he gave them a chunk of change, and he said, Steward it i 'm out for a little bit, and i 'll be back soon. take care of it and In the parable, he leaves and he returns, and upon his returning, he asks them how they did with the money that they gave them that, that he gave them, and so uh, some multiplied that and, and doubled it, and he gave them more for stewarding it well for some they they multiplied it. Uh, by, by a little bit, and he, and he rewarded them accordingly. And, and then there was one who, who hid it and didn't steward it well, and Jesus condemned him for it. See, Jesus, that parable, there's a lot to be taken from that parable, but at minimum, it's that Jesus values this thing called stewardship, us taking the resources that he has loaned to us and us stewarding those things in a way that honors him. And in, in that text in verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 15 in Luke, it says, when, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And so he engages them. They had this conversation. See how you steward your life matters to Jesus. It's not this sacred secular divide. We're going to try to knock that thing over, that wall over, over and over again. There's no divide in the kingdom of God between your sacred life and your secular life. That all of your life, Jesus invites us into and he invites us to steward those things accordingly. That you've been given gifts, which will lead to different levels of stewardship. And we're going to talk about comparison how next week, about how we can, we can look at somebody else's what they've been given, and we can compare it to our own, and we can begin to get jealous of what they have and get frustrated if we don't have what they have. And again, we'll get into that some next week. But you are responsible for your life and your lot, and your role is to steward what God has given to you, which is why we want to talk about faith and work and money. Again, Drew talked about that some last week, that God wants to redeem your understanding of, of work. But everything we have been given, we're called a steward. So what does that mean? You're called to steward your kids. They're not yours. And in some ways, you might feel like you want to control them. In some ways, you might um, feel like you want to give them what you did not have to a fault. And sometimes we have to... That's why we have parent-child dedication, where it's this declaration that I've been lent this child... This child is not ultimately mine. Everything is God. So we steward our kids and our families. If you're married, your are your spouse to steward and care. You don't own your spouse or you and no way, but we steward those things. We steward the gifts that we've been given. You each have unique gifts and callings on your life, and we're responsible to steward those things, not to hide them. We would... Jesus will have a difficult conversation with us on the back end of life if, if we don't use our gifts and callings in a way that he designed them. We're called to steward our work. Like Drew talked about last week, we're, we're called to steward our income. We're called to follow Jesus in all of these areas of life. Stewardship becomes for us a countercultural invitation It becomes this counter-invitation because, again, our culture would say, you get as much money as you can and you do with it what you want. But as followers of Jesus, he invites us into a new alternative way of life. See, Because money is a tool to steward, we are responsible to steward it well. Not to hoard it, offer ourselves to gain maximum security, not to live frivolously, but we're called to steward what he's given to us with wisdom and generosity. So you have gifts, and you have that mind that leads you to the job that you have, that leads you to the income that you get, and the question is why? Why do you have the education that you got that led you to the, the or the gifts that you had that led you to the passion that you had, that led you to the major that you had, led you to the, the schooling that you went through, that led you to the, the, the job that you had that LED you to the, the income that you have? Those gifts were given for you to steward. That money was given for you to steward. It wasn't for you to hoard, not solely for your fulfillment. So it may be on the contrary. If you have gifts that have caused you to have uh, a lean income, likewise, those, that income is designed to be for you to steward. Regardless of where you are in the tax bracket, we are all called to steward what God has given to us. Our responsibility is to seek first the kingdom of God. See, it can be very easy for us to seek first money, more money, climb the ladder, grow our own great resume, but the responsibility that we're given first, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. It's such a counter way of thinking, right? Like, isn't that different than what we're taught? Like, we're taught to, like, own your tomorrow. Like, make sure everything's set up so when you're 65 or maybe 45, if you're crazy and you want to retire young, like, we're called to, like, save as much as you can. But Jesus changes, and he's like, money's not bad. Save. That's fine. But let your heart treasure the kingdom and not money. And, man, we can get it twisted really easily. Money's neutral. It's just a tool. But that thing can become an idol in and of itself. And Jesus talks so much about it because he wants to free our hearts to make sure that we're, we're first and foremost seeking first his kingdom above all. We're never designed to seek first money. Again, money's just a tool. I remember in, in our early years of, of church planting and even in youth ministry prior to that, my wife and I, we had, we had some lean lives. Like We, we had nothing coming in. It was, it was lean. Like we'd we'd go to Chipotle. This was before like a burrito bowl was like twelve bucks. It's just stupid. Um, but like back in the day, um, when burrito bowls were six dollars, you know, like back a long time ago, we would we would go and we would split a burrito bowl, and that was a date. Like six fifty for a day, we get two tortillas. And we'd, we'd divide up the burrito and the, and the bowl, and that that's what would be our date. Like, it was just a lean time of life. And as, as we've become a little bit more stable financially, it's ever more so for us, for y'all, together, that the, the, as we grow and as we become more stable in our lives, that we need to lean into this reminder of Stewardship. It's more so attractive the more we become more stable to lean into comfort and in some ways that moves us away from the kingdom of Jesus. And ever more so as we want to actually follow Jesus into the joys of what he offers us and a free heart. It's ever more so to lean into this idea of submitting to him as the one who owns everything and say, God, what do you want us to do with this money? What are you calling us to do as a counterway to live our lives? We need to flex that muscle of stewardship. And as we choose to budget and submit to that budget and to pray over that budget, we're able to give more and save more and to be able to invest in the things that Jesus might cause us to invest into. So we're responsible to steward the things that He's given us, which leads us to the last point, which is this. And maybe the most painful one, but this is Jesus talking, not me. Our handling of money is a litmus test of our character and our treasure. Our stewardship and handling of money is a litmus test of our character and a stewardship, uh, our litmus test of our treasure. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is where a, a divide happens between what Jesus invites us into and what our culture is moving towards. See, our culture values a, a freedom in self expression without the limitations of any judgment upon that expression. I'm going to live my life, do what I want to do, and you don't tell me that it's wrong. You don't tell me that it's not God's way. You let me be me, and I'm going to be me without any, without any kind of uh, effect. So I can leave my family if I want to leave my family. I can leave my marriage if I want to leave my marriage. I can do what I want and live within self-expression. That would be what our culture is forcing down our throats. But Jesus says how you live your life communicates who you truly are and how you steward is a litmus test of your character and where your treasure lies. Again, money's a tool. It always has been. But when we treasure it, we turn it into something it was never designed to be. If we turn money into a level of security and we allow that to become our foundation, we begin to become furious when it doesn't turn in the way that we want it to turn. When, when the markets shift, we can begin to find where our true treasure is. I mean, real talk. Like over the last 12 months, you've noticed volatility within the markets. And if you find that your deepest security is in that, you can feel the waves of that in your soul. If that's where you find your treasure. If your treasure is in accumulation... And you can spend your whole life, run your family into the grounds to gain the things that are never going to give you what you thought they'd give you. If you find money as a means of power, you're going to become a cruel, cruel individual. If you find money as an identity... To prove yourself. Again, you will run your marriage and your kids into the ground. You will not become the only thing that your kids needed from you, which was to be your dad or their, their dad or their mom, and you'll end up doing whatever you can to prove yourself. Never growing up out of your childhood internal state and living all your life trying to prove yourself. See, there's a reason why Jesus spent so much time talking about money. He knew that it was important And he knew what our hearts would do with it. Nearly half, this is crazy, half of what Jesus talked about was surrounding money. Half. 16 out of 38 parables dealt with money and possessions. Significant emphasis that Jesus had because he knew that our hearts can treasure this tool. And he knew it was a litmus test of our character and our treasure. First a quote from Jesus, then a few examples He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He knew that what you treasure is where your heart's going to guide. The the treasure becomes the the wind in the sails of our lives. It's going to steer you where you go. And so if your treasure is money and security or accumulation or whatever it might be for you, that becomes for you the wind that's going to guide your life. And Jesus knew that, which is why he spoke about it often. So you want to know what you love? Look at how you spend your money. You want to know what you value? Look at how you spend your money. You want to know what you believe about the kingdom of Jesus? Look at how you spend your money. It's a litmus test of our character. Randy Alcorn said, God sees our finances and our faith as inseparable. They go hand in hand. So I'll highlight a few stories for you that Jesus gave to us. The first It's about this guy. I don't know exactly why he has such an emphasis of being so short, but Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he had a lot of money. He was a tax collector. He was like Matthew, who was one of the followers of disciples of Jesus, Um, and so Matthew and Zacchaeus had a similar job. They were tax collectors, and they, they were hated by everybody. They were hated by the people of God, Israel, because they would be taxed, uh, and some, by these tax collectors. And they were hated by uh, the, Roman, uh, the Romans as well, so they, they had no social connections. Uh, but he had heard about Jesus, and he climbed this, this sycamore tree, is what we're told in the song. And he climbed this tree to look and try to find Jesus. He knew that Jesus was coming his way, and so uh, Jesus... Shows up, again, he's a wealthy dude. In Luke chapter 19, um, verse 8, we read, we read this. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I, I have defrauded anyone of anything. I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So we see here in this snapshot that Zacchaeus' handling of money communicated the posture of his heart and the essence of his faith. His dealing with money was a litmus test of his character. We go on and we read about this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He made it in the top leaders under 30. He was this bright, young, up-and-coming, young professional. Uh, and he asked Jesus, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And I man Jesus knew there was one God that guided this rich young ruler's life, and his, and, which was his love of material gain. And in Jesus' kindness, he told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor. I mean imagine that conversation. And you're on the other side of that Jewish man from Nazareth. And you hear that word come out, come out of his mouth. And what Jesus is implying is, I want you to trust me with your life. We read it in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 21. It says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. So let's not forget the posture of the heart of Jesus and what he's about to share. He's not being mean. He's being ridiculously kind to this man. He says, looking at him, loved him and said, you like one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, Jesus wasn't being mean here, but he cared so deeply for this loaded young professional that he invited him into a greater way of life that would free his heart from the enslavement that he had around riches. And in his kindness, he invites him into this alternative way, of life. He loved this dude enough to expose the litmus test that was taking place within. Two final examples, and I want to give this, these to you. Imagine if you're a financial counselor, and some of you are, so just do what you do. But for everybody else, just imagine you're sitting down with somebody over coffee, these two individuals, and they're asking you what to do with their money, okay? So the first individual is a woman of poverty. She comes to you, she has very little left in her name, she has no family. She's solo, a widow, but she felt compelled to give God the rest of her money. The little bit she had, she wanted to give it all away to where she had nothing left and she wanted to trust God with her life. I mean, how would you respond to her as a financial counselor? No, don't, don't, maybe, but, but but typically as a financial counselor, we probably would say like, no, like you, you need that money. You need to make sure that you have that little bit. Maybe turn it and try to double it or try to do something with it. That would would be a a foolish way to do things. But but Jesus says this in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus looked up and and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a, a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Again, this was a litmus test for her, and Jesus highlighted it. And then the second person that comes to your office, as again, you're still financial counselor, but we're still there, uh, is a, a, a man of great wealth. This individual has has done the thing that some of you want to do, retire at 45. Try to figure out that way to get all the money you can to retire young and then end up living a life that's going to be uh, void of meaning and purpose because we are designed to work. Uh, so again, if you're, des- if you're thinking about that, you need to make sure you're working on the back end because what Drew talked about last week. But, but he's uh, financially very independent. Um, and he had such affluence that they, again, you're a first century uh, financial counselor, and so uh, he had uh, built these barns to store all of his affluence, and he's tearing down these barns in real time to build bigger ones because of the amount of money that he wants to store. He's growing his wealth so much. How would you respond as a financial counselor? Wow, you've done it right. You've Nailed it. You've exceeded expectations. You've gone beyond what the trends would say. Well done. So then we ask, what does Jesus say to this individual? In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, it says this. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist And the abundance of his possessions. I mean, that's gold right there from the words of Jesus. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy retirement. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus, it doesn't, he's not PC, He doesn't give a rip about what people think. And he comes on the scene and he comes to the church in 2023. And he says, There is a foolish way to spend your money. There's a foolish way to live your life, to live in such a way that the abundance of your wealth is the accumulation of your identity. He says, There's an alternative way to live your life. He says, Don't be enslaved with this tool, let it just be a tool and not something more. See, money is a litmus test. And in an affluent, suburban context, it is very, not not saying that everyone in here is affluent. I know that's not true. We're all over the place. But it is really important to get under the hood of our heart. Out of love that Jesus has for us, it is very kind of him to give us a space to look under the hood of our heart and say, do I value hobbies more than the kingdom? Do I value my home more than the kingdom? Do I value my vehicles or the ones that I want to have more than the kingdom? See, Jesus invites you to put your treasure in him, not in this tool. And generosity, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, is a needed practice to free our hearts. But I want to land in this section right after um, the story of the rich fool. Right after Jesus shares about the parable of the rich fool, when he talks about one's life does not consist in the abundance of his riches, he pulls his disciples aside and he says this. In verse 31 and 32, he says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, but seek his kingdom. And these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, he says, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. And seek his kingdom in your home. Seek his kingdom in your work. Seek his kingdom in your stewardship. Seek his kingdom. What we are called into is a conversion of our hearts and lives to fully trust in the provision of God. And I love that kind statement. He says, fear not, little flock. I mean, how much kinder can he get? Fear not, little flock. Your father's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. See, half of the reason why we pursue this tool and make it a god is that we don't trust in those few words of Jesus. Fear not, little flock. Your Father's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That doesn't mean we don't save. That doesn't mean that we don't uh, do what this, the squirrels do and proverbs and the places where we're supposed to store. That there is a place for that, but not allowing that to grab hold of our hearts that's where the tool becomes a treasure and he's trying to free our hearts that our treasure would be in him and seeking his kingdom and not in the tool that he's given as a means of us simply to steward. So feel the care of Jesus. He might invite you to sell something. He might invite you to save something. He might invite you to decrease your investments to increase in your investment in the kingdom of heaven. But our responsibility is to steward what he gives and to deeply trust him with our lives. Friends, he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. He can be trusted with our life. He informs us about our money, and he invites us into a life of trust, ultimately a life of generosity that's counter to this world. But at baseline, it begins with this understanding. Fear not, little flock. You're cared for more than you realize you might have grown up in a home with your family of origin where you didn't feel like your parents cared for you. You feel like you grew up in a more of a a poverty space, and you've been spending all of your life to try to counter that. And as we've stepped into this place of faith, we're invited into trusting God with our lives. This beautiful invitation, fear not, little flock. Your Father's gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Jesus has much more to say about money that we don't have time for, but at minimum, he says this. Amen? Let's pray. I think oftentimes, God, we can feel in conversations like these that you approach us from a position of anger or frustration of what we're not doing and what we should be doing and disappointment and all the things. And I think that you actually, Jesus, you actually approach people very different. I thank you that you loved the rich young ruler Thank you that you told your disciples, fear not, little flock. Your Father's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be re-anchored in our understanding of money, that would free our hearts, not enslave our hearts. Thank you that you're calling us away from being enslaved and into freedom, and it's in real time, and it's not just on Sunday mornings, but it's in Tuesday nights when we're looking at our budget, and it's on the different times of our life when you're inviting us into a new way of life. Stir our hearts, God. I pray you invite us into this real invitation of being a people of faith, not just for eternity, but on February 5th, 2023, that we would feel the invitation to trust you with our lives. God, I pray that you would help us. Give us the gift of faith to feel your invitation. Lord, I give you thanks for your love and your care and your kindness. draw near to us and meet us in Jesus' name. Amen.